On today's episode, a federal election debrief through an EDI lens with special guest Zane Velji. Welcome to Exclusion, a podcast that explores all things equity, diversity, and inclusion in the workplace. Exclusion is brought to you by Canadian Equality Consulting and Biarg Consulting. Hello, everyone. This is Marcy here. Today, we're talking about the recent federal election in Canada. We'll be having this discussion with an equity, diversity, and inclusion lens. And since our podcast listeners are from all around the world, we wanted to share a debrief on our, on our federal election and any lessons that might be able to be applied to politics in any country. Yes, and this is Alicia here. And as always, in the spirit of respect, reciprocity, and truth, we acknowledge that this podcast is being recorded on the traditional territories and oral practices of the Treaty 7 region in Southern Alberta and Region 3 Métis Nation. We acknowledge all nations, Indigenous and non, who live, work, and play in these lands, and to all who assist in their stewardships for generations to come. We're very fortunate to have a special guest with us today to discuss this topic, uh, Zane Velji. So you might recognize Zane's voice because he used to have a podcast called The Strategist. He's also a frequent political commentator for news channels like the CBC, the Toronto Star, CTV, and the Globe and Mail, among others, offering his expert analysis on politics at all levels. Zane is a vice president of strategy at Norweather, which is a strategy and technology firm in Calgary. And in 2017, Zane managed the re-election campaign for Calgary Mayor Nahid Nenshi. He's delivered keynote addresses internationally on topics including emerging technologies within today's news environment, political strategy amidst changing value systems, and strategy imperatives for corporate and advocacy brands. Zane is also on the board of directors of the YMCA, Calgary Reads, and the Canadian Children's Book Centre. And he's a member on the Education and Lifelong Learning Committee of the Calgary Foundation. He's also a city lead for the Banff Forum, a leading Canadian public policy think tank. So thank you so much for joining us today, Zane. Oh, Marcy, Alicia, thanks so much. It's a, it's a pleasure. All right, so let's jump in. So each political party seems to pardon to a specific group of people. Who do you think was each party's target audience and demographic? Oh, that's a great question. And I mean, this was an interesting election for the purposes of the fact that when you look at the outcome of an election, you always ask yourself, you know, what was this ballot box question? And this ballot box question is something that, you know, campaigners and, and, and campaign operatives use to say, what was the question that the public broadly was thinking about when they marked an X beside the candidate of their choosing? Was it about the economy? Was it about um, you know, was it about housing, poverty, social issues? Uh, and I think what was fascinating about this election, unlike some of the recent elections we've been through, is that there was no one unifying ballot box question. 
And I think part of that is because, you know, the regionalization of, of this election, which further led to uh, the, the more specificity than we've ever seen in terms of who everyone's sort of audience, quote unquote, was, right? So when you look at, you know, conservatives, you kind of split that up in a few ways. They generally tend to have voters that come from out west, specifically uh, Alberta and Saskatchewan, where their power base is. They can almost guarantee that those will be the people that will show up for them and grant them the seat totals in those two provinces. They also tend to lean older. They also try to, you know, get the the, the senior population, those above fifty five. They've got very good salience with those individuals. They also tend to lean more rural. So when we look at the urban-rural divide, who usually makes up and kind of sweeps through rural uh, parts of our country, not just our Western provinces, is the conservatives. And then finally, what they battle for, what they continue to battle for, is young families and suburban voters. And at the end of the day, this election on demographics alone was based on young families and suburban voters. Those are the people that kind of commute into our major urban centers. So there's a few areas in the country we talk about. One of them was called the 905 in Ontario, which is the ring around Toronto. That's just an easy way to think about it. And the 40 or so ridings in there, the, the, the conservatives try to compete there. And I think, you know, they came out of that from the 30 ridings that are officially in the 905. I think they won 20 and they lost 22 of them. So hence, you can see why they, why they didn't win government. Um, so that's kind of their base. The liberals also compete for a similar base, the young suburban voters, families. But then what they, the added sort of quote unquote advantage that the liberals have is that they start to sweep through a lot of our main urban centers outside of Alberta and Saskatchewan, perhaps, and have real good salience there. So I'm talking about Vancouver, Toronto, Ottawa, Montreal. They really kind of have a good play there. And then when you look at the NDP, they're looking at coastal. Uh, so British Columbia, they're strong in or they were strong in. Uh, up until this election, and they have the same competing game with the with the liberals, which is those urban center voters uh, that they compete for, trending a bit younger, trending a bit more on uh, some of the social issues and the social justice issues that they care about. And then when we look at the Greens, you know, in a sense of a national political party, they've got a very similar demographic attraction uh, that the NDP would, for example. But I think what they do not have is a, is a ground game and an operation to actually effectively mobilize those people. And we saw that with their, with their seat count sitting at three, um, to, to get them and vote for their party. So I'm sorry for that long-winded answer, but that's kind of how this election has broken down on some of those demographic uh, issues and territories. Interesting. Would you say, is there any particular party that, like, it kind of seems, um, that the liberals are really pushing for women? Um, sure. Were there any other kind of kind of a gendered analysis that any of these parties kind of tried to focus on or? Yeah, I feel like I feel like progressive parties in general and I and I kind of peel away from this election for a second have realized that that elections are both strategically and operatively and I'll explain those in a second are won through women and strategically it's the sense that Women uh, are a very strong, loud, and large coalition of most progressive parties. When you look at, um, for example, you know the election that I ran here in 2017 for Mayor Nahed Nenshi of Calgary, the first sort of um, and, and the first and strongest and, and most vocal base of people that we had was women. They were there because um, they liked what Nahed was talking about. The issues resonated for him. Uh, the, the issues he talked about resonated for them. Um, and, and the election that, that we molded was very much to try to empathize the entire frame of an election through 
through the eyes of, of, of someone who might be female, um, specifically because they are the ones that on a strategic level can show up to a progressive campaign. The second part of that is operationally. What we operationally know is that women have just a higher tendency and a, just a broader social network. And, and I know that that's a very simplified mm-hmm. uh, political analysis. But knowing that is that, you know, women ultimately are the gatekeepers to decision making in most households, especially if they're uh, households that have, let's say, a, a, a male and a, and a female partner, that women are the, the gateway toward decision making, what you're doing, where you're going, what you're buying, and in certain cases, how you're voting. So knowing to get access to that, and now all parties are aware of that. I'm not just saying this, uh, you know, um, progressive parties. I think progressive parties have been first and early on this. Uh, looking at women as that frame has been uh, has been particularly useful. That's a very long-winded way of, for me to say that I think both the NDP and the Greens made made explicit sort of use cases to try to appeal to women by using terminology, language, and especially issues and how uh, even Jagmeet Singh talked about certain things around social issues uh, for a female audience. And then I would say that the conservatives who didn't necessarily maybe speak that in, in, in the sense of language certainly did in terms of representation, putting out some of their key female candidates, such as Michelle Rempel, uh, having some of their key surrogates, such as Ronna Ambrose, two Albertans that I just mentioned, uh, out on the front lines to ultimately signal to, to voters, uh, especially female voters, that there is a home for you in this party. Just look at us as an example. So I would say that, you know, every party wants to appeal to women simply because of, of the two factors I mentioned. And then all parties had a different way of doing it between language and representation uh, and kind of how they, they try to attract women to, to vote for them. So I would say this election versus the last election the parties did not um, give as much attention to First Nations issues and the First Nation vote. If you don't feel included, it's kind of hard to want to go to the ballot box sometimes. Oh, it's it's absolutely true. You know, they say in politics that, you know, you vote for someone that you either aspire to be or you see yourself in. And if you're an Indigenous Canadian in this election, uh, it was it was it's a real interesting cycle because 2015 had Indigenous representation. You had Indigenous prominent candidates within each party. And, you know, yes, I think there was one race up in, uh, and, I, and I should know the riding, uh, where up in, uh, I believe, Iqaluit, where we had three Indigenous candidates running against each other and, and the NDP candidate was successful. That was a fascinating story, just the dynamics of that story. To have three Indigenous women looking to represent Canada's largest landmass, I think that's just a fascinating story. It was not discussed, at least in my purview, until election night. And then we were like, oh, yeah, one of them won. Right. And so when we look at that, when we look at issues around just, you know, what indigenous people are facing, uh, you know, the TRC, what's the next steps on that? You know, clean drinking water. There was that that, you know, pseudo viral moment with Jagmeet Singh talking to a reporter saying, of course, we're going to spend whatever it takes to clean drinking water. You know, would you ask that question if this was Canada, one of Canada's municipalities or urban municipalities? So, you know, the, the indigenous issues didn't necessarily enter the fray. We didn't really have much. I think in this case, profile on some of the Indigenous candidates. Uh, And I think, you know, and I haven't seen any of the exit results of of Indigenous communities uh, if they showed out less to to this election. But I think that's going to be something Justin Trudeau, and we can get into this part, will have to do a lot of work on in terms of reconciling a lot of the gaps and the divots that we see in our current politics. Regionality is one of them. You know, representation is another. Um, You know, gender issues, diversity and multiculturalism. Because of everything that has gone on over the course of the last six months on all these issues, uh, he's going to have to do some real work to try to, uh, to, to ensure that the, the, the 
crevices that we have don't become fractures on some of these issues. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So to continue this kind of gender theme and, uh, and diversity theme as well, because our podcast is focused on equity, diversity, and inclusion more broadly, it's interesting seeing how this manifested in different ways throughout the election. And we saw sure. conversations around Quebec's Bill 21, um, also, as you mentioned, kind of representation of women, um, but then also um, discussion, certain discussion around policy issues, around gender equality. Um, so could you speak to this a bit and, uh, and explain how these issues were kind of strategically used by different parties and for what purpose? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's always, and I hate to oversimplify, but it seems like issues of diversity and gender and women's rights, to be more pointed, are always used as political wedges um, rather than actually national full-on conversations. And I would, I, and I, and I, what I will say is that this election was no different, unfortunately, right? Uh, when we had um, reporters asking Andrew Scheer uh, what he thought on, on abortion rights for women, uh, he said, I've got a personal view and I've got one that, uh, and I've got a view that I would defend. And I've actually been good enough for most people. And I'll be totally candid. I'm a progressive person who, uh, on the political spectrum, who thought that answer from Andrew Scheer, the conservative leader, was fine, which was to say, I can hold these views um, as an individual, but I should be able to then, as your prime minister, regardless of who you are, regardless of which one of the 35 million people you are across this country, I will defend the law. That's what I'm, that is what I'm paid to do. That is what I'm running for. And so what we often try to do is just use this as a process, especially these issues of race, diversity, women's issues, as a wedge to put one side on the other and say, oh, look, this party's against women or this party's against indigenous people or this party's against racialized people, come to the other side. And this election was no different, right? We saw the Justin Trudeau blackface, brownface thing, which then could have led into a national conversation about race, but it did not. Uh, We saw Bill 21, very similarly, where every single party leader said, yeah, I think this is discriminatory, but none of them had the gumption or the guts to say, I'm going to take federal action against this. Why? Because of the political math. They all wanted to get votes in Quebec. And what ended up happening? None of them really made the inruns they expected by taking that stance. They had a chance to make a principled moment. Instead, what they did is they, they sheepishly backed away and the bloc came in and they won 30 plus seats, 35 plus seats, if I'm not mistaken, in Quebec on the heels of that, of that, of that bill. So, I mean, diversity and multicultural issues is another, and I kind of go back to this, now that the election is over, now that Justin Trudeau is prime minister, it is one of the crevices he's going to have to absolutely deal with to say that I am a strong defender of these things. I'm a strong supporter of diversity and pluralism, not just because I had, you know, textured and unfortunate incidents in my past. And that's I'm, I'm, I'm kind of atoning for them, but more so because this is what I believe and this is what the country needs. So, I mean, and, and if I can add one final editorial comment, it's on Bill 21. And this, once again, for people that, that I did not explain the context to that are listening. This was the bill in Quebec that said, if you wear a turban, uh, if you have any religious symbol as a hijab, you cannot uh, effectively get promoted in in public service life. And that's a very simplified version of it, but that was the brunt of it. And that bill was defended by Jagmeet Singh, the leader of the NDP, a man who himself wears a turban, is a devout Sikh, ultimately signaling to people in Quebec that if you look like me, if you look like us, I'm sorry, man, you can't be promoted to a police officer. And, and, and he effectively defended that. So now that Jagmeet Singh will have some balance of power heading into this next parliament, I really hope for the historical record he takes the right 
step on this because, I mean, if for nothing else other than to signal to other people that the first Sikh individual to lead a federal party is not going to go back against his own people. So I can go on that for forever, but to, to, you know, long answer short, it was used as a wedge again, and now we've got some healing to do on the back end. So when we take topics such as these that do create these political wedges, now this is more of a hypothetical, but the topic of electoral reform, would we be able to get away from those issues a bit more and maybe vote for the person we really want to vote for um, if, if we didn't do the first pass the post? I think you're right. I mean, what I will say is that there are really complex um, ramifications of changing our voting system. I think the Trudeau government realized that. They realized it way too late because mm-hmm. they had promised it in 2015 and then they got into it and they're like, oh, crap. There are, there's a lot of moving parts here. Uh, but your question, the premise that you asked, you're absolutely right. Um, I sit here today as a progressive in Albertan, uh, you know, knowing that 70% of my province voted conservative and power to them. They sent a strong message. But I also knew that even in a riding where, where, the, where the liberal came 1,500 votes from winning last time, I knew that it was going to be nowhere near that close. And the concept of actually getting out there and voting, while it wasn't tough for me, I absolutely empathize how it would have been tough for someone who wanted to vote for the party and know that there was no chance whatsoever. And so same for someone who had, you know, strongly held conservative views sitting in downtown Toronto or Vancouver or coastal British Columbia or even some of the Atlantic provinces. Same for someone who is an ardent, you know, Green Party supporter sitting in downtown Edmonton, knowing that there's not even a viable candidate. So, yes, we can get through some of these things. We just have to figure out how it works on the back end. And, you know, is it, is it a system where we don't really have any regional representatives, where the percentage beyond a certain threshold, those number of seats are implemented? That sounds great in theory, but what does that mean for when I, wanna, when I have an immigration issue or an issue that I want to talk to my MP about because I don't really have an MP dedicated to me? I just have these people that I voted for. So there's these, these tremendous you know, complications that those significantly more intelligent than, than me are, are trying to figure out as to what the future of our voting system looks like. But on the top line, could you vote your conscience, vote your heart, vote for what you care about rather than fighting against something with a, with a renewed and altered voting system? I think so. And I think that's the attractiveness of it is to ensure that these regional divides, even though they may have happened on the outcome, right? Um, we still may, let's say with, with the mixed member system, let's say we'd implemented that. I was just looking at the data. The, 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 the results regionally could, would have been almost exactly the same. However, you may have had a bunch more people feel like they could actually voice what they wanted rather than being pressured to strategically voting or feeling like there was only one socially acceptable way to vote in their region or territory or within their, where, their family or social network. So a number of parties over the years have made kind of a concerted effort to try to increase the representation of women um, that they have for candidates. And um, some of them have been successful. Some of them have, haven't, but it's been a good PR exercise. Um, so what do you think and what advice could you give parties um, for an effective way that they could try to increase the diversity of their candidates? That's a great question. I mean, I'd love to turn that back to you guys too, because you guys have s- such an intimate understanding of some of the, the mechanics that go on here. I mean, the first thing I would say is I'd want to slap every single party on the wrist around diversity and, and, uh, around gender candidates because two things. Number one, I'm, what I'm really glad about is that it is now table stakes. I feel like, and I'm really hoping that this is the last election where every party comes out and celebrates self-aggrandizingly as to how many people of color or racialized people or women that they have running. 
and I think we're entering a time where it's like, get over it. That's just how Canada works. So you don't get any like, you know, brownie points for, for having candidates that represent the, the entire texture of our country. So I'm hoping, and I think that's good news. And I, I, the, where I do think, however, we need to hold every single party, every single one, their feet to the fire, is where they are placing these diverse and women candidates. Because if they are just going to do it in an incredibly cynical and Machiavellian way, where all of their viable seats, which are the seats that they feel like they can win, they're putting their all-star candidates or their insiders club or people that have been part of the party fabric for decades, and then they're going out seeking diverse candidates, really pleading with them to run in areas where there's a 1 in 50 chance they can win, that's total BS, right? And I think that's the next step of what we need to start calling out as people who care about these, is, is how many candidates of that are women or that are racialized you have running in seats that you yourself as a party would call viable. And if that number is not, that's the number I want to start judging parties on, not the overall out of 338. How many of those candidates that you are actually going to form government with, should you be lucky to do so, are, are of that of that ilk? But I mean, I'm curious, what do you guys think? I mean, that's that, that's the main thing that I've been trying to harp on for the last little bit is is not just diversity and, and, and gender, but where, like, where do these people need to come from? Because if they're not viable, well, that, that you're just trying to pull the wool over our eyes saying that the inputs are this, but the outcomes will not even be close to having a representation of that sort. So I'm kind of curious, like, it, what your guys' thought was as you witnessed this election. And I hate to turn it on you, but I'm sorry if, if that <laughs> wasn't the intention, but I'm just kind of curious with, with you guys following that specific thread mm-hmm. um, as well. Mm-hmm. For sure. I, I completely agree with you in that a lot of parties kind of take a superficial attack to this to this issue and just kind of you know, almost do like a public PR kind of awareness building campaign saying, we want more women, we want more women, but then they don't actually do any tangible things to address barriers that women face that men don't to actually, um, you know, make it more viable and accessible for them to particularly run. And we know women are more often put in ridings where they can't win, like you said. Um, And they're usually given less financial support. Less financial support, yeah. And then then even... um, and then some of the other barriers, right? Like they have, they don't have access to the old boys networks where you get a lot of funding from. Totally, um, totally. Yeah. They also, I mean, we have a pay gap in this country still, so it's harder for them to just leave work or t- take time off work when they're already making less money to be able to financially um, cover themselves while they run. Um, I mean, so many women uh, in this country also have children and childcare is a huge issue um, across the country that no party seems to be focused on right now, which is really frustrating. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. especially when they're all trying to focus on kind of families, like you mentioned, or they see that as a, like a, as a good demographic that they, that they want and they're fighting for. But, but really like one of the main issues for, um, lower representation of women in the workforce or the advancement of women centers around childcare. Yeah. I, I, I want would, to pick up on a, I, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Go no, sorry, please. I was just also going to say, I remember when Trudeau did get in in 2015 and he created his gender balance cabinet. Right. Lots right. of pushback that, you know, it's, it should be the best person for the job. And I remember challenging so many of my male colleagues that said that. I'm like, did you look, actually look at the resumes of these women mm-hmm. that have been put in the cabinet? They are highly qualified. Mm-hmm. So the yeah, bias yeah. that we have that if, if a woman is put into a position that she's not qualified. Right. They didn't actually meet it through the merit- <laughs> meritocratic lens. Right. And I feel like people have called it being one. Right. And speaking from personal experience, I mean, I think it's applied to racialized people as well. I mean, it's certainly compounded Absolutely. when you're racialized and a woman like guaranteed. Yeah. Right. 
Yeah. But it's certainly that sort of fact that like, oh, of course, you're just here as a tokenized version of something because they needed representation rather than saying uh, that was maybe not an added bonus because I hate to kind of, you know, place yeah. it, but that was the latter consideration. You got through the meritocratic hurdle of being, you know, a qualified domain expert. If, for example, going back to your cabinet example, uh, then being a woman, it just so happened to be nice that, you know, those considerations were made as well. There's a couple of things I want to pick up on because I think the first thing is the barriers, right? Like the barriers that, especially for federal office, I don't think people realize this, but mm-hmm. A, you've got the largest, uh, the largest geographic space, even if you're an urban center, than, than any other form of government, uh, you know, for the most part. I know that's a simplification, but I think for the most part that holds. And number two, like being away from your family, this is not just a job you can do from home or within that bounds of your riding. You literally have to be in Ottawa for a large portion of your time. Uh, and if you form government, I mean, that just forms an entirely different uh, sacrifice that, that people need. Number two is on the funding. I think that was a great point around like access to funding. You know, there's a reason why people who ultimately end up running for office are those that have a, the flexibility of taking several months off campaigning to run for office and b having access to the resources to run for office and c having some sort of backstop to say that I can take six months off to do this well, Mm -hmm. or maybe eight to 12 months off to do this well. And knowing that you don't have to worry about your next dollar. And who does that actually apply to? That's a very small sliver of our Canadian, uh, you know, population. And then the final thing, which is just fascinating that, I, that, you, that you mentioned, uh, I was listening to an interview recently about The Cost of Running, which, was on, which is a great podcast by the CBC uh, called The Cost of Living with Paul Havertrude. And they were talking about the cost of living, uh, the cost of uh, running for office. And, and they said they had hard costs, the fundraising financials, the soft costs, the relationships, and then the unknown costs. One of the unknown costs was, and, 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 and I, I could be wrong, but it applied specifically more to women than it did to men by a large margin was if you lose running for public office, the taint of running for a particular banner actually affects your job prospects down the line, more so if you're a woman than a man. So for example, if I run as a liberal in in Calgary here and I lose and I want to go get a job in the energy sector uh, and I were just doing the exact same thing as a man, it would be significantly easier as a man than a woman or vice versa, or going to the nonprofit sector. So, I mean, there are all these other costs that come with it, which I think that that podcast, which I recommend people listen to, articulated that we just don't even realize, right? Unless you're like, you know, double-clicking beyond the surface, we don't even even think of some of those things. That's that's actually quite fascinating. And I actually myself thought about running for – city politics a few years ago Mm -hmm. and it was mentioned to me to ask to actually talk to a few former female um uh counselors and this is exactly what what i'm not gonna say who it is this is exactly what she said to me the cost to her afterwards from even being on city council Hmm. when she lost the second time she went was was huge for her for finding a job after that's right like trying to find a landing spot somewhere exactly yeah yeah that's that's harsh and uh, and you also hear, I know Rana Ambrose has talked a lot about like the divorce rate among politicians, particularly if you're if you're a woman, it's so incredibly high, especially with federal politics compared to and it's and it's crazy how gendered it is because um, the divorce rate among the male politicians is way lower. Right. That's fa- that's fascinating. I, I wonder why that is. I mean, I mean, we also have this, and, and you guys would would certainly have better insights on this. But we also have this: women need to do it all, sort of, you know, mm-hmm. mantra that that applies to it, right? So yes, you can 
be a highly successful cabinet minister, but make sure you also do all the other things that, you know, are gender defined, which I'm sure makes it incredibly frustrating um, for, for women who are trying to, who are just high achievers in this space. But I, did, did you, did you get an understanding as to why that was in terms of that, that divorce rate conversation, the, the Delta between men and women? Um, like the qualitatively what I, what I've heard Rana say before to explain that, um, was largely that a lot of the, the spouses of male political candidates, um, don't work or are okay because they make lower right. salaries to begin with. So then they're okay so just quitting and moving yeah. to Ottawa or, or whatever to be closer with them or have that flexibility. Um, and whereas the, the women that do that, um, the men typically don't want to give up on their job or don't want to move or they're or less once again, flexible you hedge your bets. Yeah. Right? Way less accommodating. Right. Yeah. And Why, if, if it's harder for a woman to get a job after politics, you would want your husband to give up his job then. Yeah. Right. So we find a very similar trend. I'm, I'm a geologist by trade, so I'm in the STEM world mm-hmm. and it's the same thing that quite often the female STEM professionals will come from dual career families versus their male counterparts. Hmm. That's fascinating, mm. and and now that you explained it to me, absolutely unsurprising, right? Like mm. that, because you, you've I've anecdotally noticed the same thing. I just didn't put the pieces together, right? Right. Interesting. And the other thing is, when we talk about kind of effective things parties could do to increase their diversity as well, is when we when we were talking a bit about um, Justin Trudeau and the cabinet appointments. I mean, I'm very appreciative of some of the stuff he's done to advance gender equality, but there's certain ways that you know are kind of lip service versus real impactful change. And even the way that it's been presented, um, whether it's he comes across and it, it seems deliberately to come across as like a savior to women and a savior for gender equality and not an ally. Yes. Yeah, so that and is two different things. Yeah. People need to know there's a difference between savior mm. and ally in any intersection, right? Yeah. And that cabinet appointment example is a perfect example of how he um, came across as like a savior by saying, first of all, you know, look at me. I appointed uh, gender parity in my cabinet as like the number one key message, right? And he and he mm. launched with that, and then that led and that fed into everyone's existing biases of, um, you know, of how gender parity can't be based on meritocracy, which is completely so, false. And is an can I can I can I ask you a question? I, and I hate to derail your 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 line That's of question, okay. but I'm super <laughs> curious about this. So so if you were him to like heading into November twentieth, because that's when he's appointing his next one. How would you like, what would you tell him to do if he's, if he's, cause I think he's already signaled he's going to have it, Jen, but like, how would you have him frame that? Cause this is fascinating to me and I probably fall into the same, bi- I would fall into the same bias as well if I weren't aware of it, but like uh, between the, the savior and an ally, I think that's fascinating. And I'm sure for your listeners, they probably have a good understanding of that distinction. I, and I personally do not. So like what what could be like the, 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 the difference that he could kind of make in terms of how he presents it, even if it is going to be gender balanced? Well, I, I would say that when it comes to women and like I said, the, what the women, you just have to look at their resumes. They were <laughs> highly um, successful women that were in his cabinet. So just to put people there to say that I'm doing, you know, I'm making sure it's gender, um, gender neutral in and itself is, is a gendered way of saying that as opposed to saying, I pick the best people for the job. And oh, by the way, half of them are women. You know, mm-hmm. like I think there's another way to spin it, mm-hmm. right? Because I, I guarantee you there's been many cabinet members over the years that have been of various backgrounds that have not had the merit that sh- they should have been there, but they got there simply through connections. Or I once read an article that um, nepotism is actually more of a real thing than meritocracy. 
atrocities. So yeah, yeah, I believe that. So yeah, so I think it would be so much better if he led with that and saying, I picked the best people for the job. These people are highly qualified, um, highly effective, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, and then let the public figure out that it's gender parity. And interesting, so that, right, right. Tokenism. And, and it's a difficult position for him to be in now because he already, because he right. started it. It's now expected, before, right? So, <laughs> yeah, right. He set the bar for himself. You're right. You're absolutely so right. So he kind of screwed himself over in advance for this one. But in general, he needs to realize that he cannot, that to be an ally, you cannot put other people's voices in your own, like without their permission and, and things like that. So you cannot um, come across as, you know, women have this problem, so I'm going to do this for them. You right. know, that's very right. I see what you're saying. What he yeah. needs to do is say, you know, through consultations, um, you know, we've gathered the lived experience of these people, maybe have his female cabinet members um, get the credit for these ones and launch them and, and have that conversation because he shouldn't really be front and center of it if he wants to be an ally. And so he should amplify the voices of those other strong female cabinet members that he has that, uh, that could lead the messaging on these issues. Right, right. It's fascinating. Yeah. All right. So we'll go on to our next question here. Speaking of, of the Liberals and their cabinet that's coming forward, what are your predictions for what will happen next with this minority government? Um, yeah, I, I think, I mean, a few things. I think, number one, they've said they're not going to work in a coalition. Okay. Number two, I feel like they're going to have to be much more tempered in terms of how they deal with things. And I think that's almost like a three-dimensional phrase. Tempered in the sense that Trudeau's temperament has to be a lot more humble a lot less uh, celebratory, not like not like downtrodden, but certainly more like uh, in 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 a in a let's let's listen and consult uh, rather than let's just act. And part of that is going to be based on the fact he just does not have the latitude to act unilaterally. He does not have a majority government, um, and I think a lot of that listening is going to have to happen out here in in the West, where the regional divides of the political map are are very different. Uh, than they have been uh, in, in, is for the liberals, especially where they don't have any seat uh, between Vancouver and Winnipeg. Uh, and so that's, that's going to be some, something they need to, to reconcile with. Uh, at the end of the day, however, I don't think there's going to be an election immediately. Uh, every single party strapped for resources. They're either in debt, they're tired, they're exhausted. Um, so it's not like we're going to have a snap election um, that's going to be triggered by the, the NDP because they're, I know, significantly in debt and leveraged. So they need to get out of that hole. They need to rebuild. They need to reconsider if they want Jagmeet Singh as their leader. And frankly, the conservatives are going to have that same conversation. You know, Andrew Scheer came out on election night and said this was phase one of two, which was a smart strategic thing for him to say, uh, considering he'd never said it before, uh, where he was like, this is phase one of two. So congratulations. We won tonight by weakening the liberals. And then when they get defeated, uh, when, when, they're, when they're ready to like, you know, go down, we'll be there taking the, uh, the mantle from them. And so there'll be conservatives right now asking themselves, despite the gifts that Andrew Scheer was given, blackface, brownface, ethics investigation, <laughs> SMT scandal, right? Like all these oh, things God. that he was given, uh, and he still couldn't make the promised land, promise land being a majority <laughs> government. Do we need to reconsider him in the driver's seat? And I think conservatives, you guys might know this better than I, I think they're going to have a mandatory leadership review of Andrew Scheer. That's just like, you know, standard policy for their next convention. Anytime you lose uh, most parties trigger a leadership review, and these leadership reviews have very high bars. They're like 65 or 70 percent. So what that ultimately means is everyone who shows up, you need 70 percent of the vote to stay in as leader, or else you have wow. to effectively give it up. So Andrew Scheer will have that come to, come, coming moment, I think in the next 12 to 16 months. 
So that will be something to watch because everyone's now going to try to figure out which, who do they want as their jockey heading into the next race, knowing that we're on territory, that a race could be anywhere between 18 to, you know, let's say 36 months away. So that's a very long-winded answer for you, but I think everyone's just reanalyzing, introspecting. In the short term, Trudeau needs to figure out what representation and government and cabinet looks like for him, how he stitches together the regional divide on federalism, and how he wants to deal with some of his, you know, uh, let's just say not-so-friendly premiers in, in Alberta and Saskatchewan and Manitoba around things related to carbon pricing, pipelines, energy resourcing, etc. So a lot of moving parts, but I mean, this is what happens when you have a minority government even with one that's kind of stable-ish like the Trudeau government has, uh, is there's going to be a lot of people jockeying to figure out what the next political uh, inflection point for, their, for them and their party looks like. So speaking of that, I'm just curious, what is your take on our one independent? What kind of power does she have as a single voice? I mean, I would have loved to say that she's got, she's actually upgraded her position, but like mechanically based on how our parliamentary system works, she is not. She's not a cabinet member anymore. Her speaking time goes down. She's not part of the caucus. She's given significantly rest resources, not just from her former ministerial position. And sorry, by the way, we're talking about Jody Wilson. Oh, of course. Here. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Just, just making sure everyone knows. Um, and so she just ha- does not have the same placement in the government. She does not occupy the same seat of privilege that she used to before. Now, with that being said, what she is, is someone who can literally do whatever she wants Represent, and she's got the mandate from her her residents to say oh, however yeah, and whatever she wants, whenever she wants, she's not bound by any party whip, any party discipline. The question I have then for her is uh, how much credence did Jody Wilson-Raybould have going forward? Is her voice going to be dealt with through the media lens like it was during the SNC time? Probably not. But she's still a household name. People know the name. People know the history and baggage. And if there is an ethics scandal investigation, et cetera, anything in that domain that re-enters our zeitgeist, you can absolutely guarantee that Jody Wilson-Raybould and a camera will be best friends, and rightfully (laughs) so, because this is the way, I mean, as an independent MP, I don't mean to be crass about it, but as an independent MP, you have very few avenues to get your voice out there, right? It's your own social media account. It's a very small budget. So how do you get yourself out there beyond the four walls of your riding, which I'm sure she'll represent well? It's it's around issues that that you were once involved in or had a historical past in, etc. So Long story short, I would love to say that I think her influence is going to be outsized. Um, it might be more so than your average independent person. But what ends up happening is usually the people who are independents either got kicked out or are not average in the sense that they're, they were had enough, you know, they got kicked out of caucus. So they have to sit as an independent begrudgingly, or they were special exemplary people and they could make the entire go of it as an independent. And she falls definitely into the latter category. So maybe, maybe she gets a little bit of, 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 uh, win behind that, but certainly not to the heyday when she was Minister of Justice. And uh, we've talked a bit about kind of the regionalization and polarization of the of this election. And uh, I'd love to pick your brain and hear your thoughts on the Wexit, the Alberta separatist movement, and what you have heard or what you have seen and if it uh, could be gendered. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think it's just, a, it's another valve for angry Albertans, right? It's another thing where it's like, we soon run out of instruments to get and, and how to get angry. Uh, so we went to the ballot boxes and, okay, Trudeau won again. And we, we kicked and screamed about quicker pipelines and that's stuck in the court. And then we yell at each other in and, and, and our you know, a collective sort of uh, trajectory that we're, all, we're, all getting, we're getting kicked while we're down here in Alberta. And, and that hasn't done anything. So this, to me, is another 
exit valve. And I rightfully agree that some of our major political leaders have dismissed it as being anywhere between ludicrous to impossible, which is, which is what it is. Uh, it is not going to happen. But it is, you know, the worry I have is that the mindset of separation is probably more potent than actually separating, mm-hmm. which is to say that the mindset that, that people will have, which, which started with, I've lost my job. No one cares for our sector. No one cares for our city. No one's here to represent us. And then coalescing that with the mindset of saying, maybe we should leave. And though we never can, I think of myself more as Albertan than I do as Canadian. That is super dangerous. That's super dangerous for Jason Kenney. That's super dangerous for Nahid Nenshi, for Justin Trudeau. It's super dangerous for every politician because you don't want an electorate that starts thinking of themselves and othering themselves um, specifically because that will lead to more regional fractures. And, you know, the tallest task is for Justin Trudeau to ensure that he can stitch this together, have enough representation. Um, so I, I, I empathize with the sense of the anger. I also think it's absolutely ludicrous and ridiculous. It will never happen. But I'm really, really concerned that the mindset of separation, where people will feel like they want to other themselves, put themselves out on the sidelines, um, not take pity on themselves, but kind of do that, uh, while simultaneously feeling like they are not as Canadian as, as everyone else, that's incredibly dangerous. And that actually, I think, starts to threaten uh, what we've built around federalism and, and then the federation overall. Can it be gendered? I don't know. I mean, the, the observation anecdotally I'll provide is that, you know, I hate to stereotype, but it seems like <laughs> angry men that mm-hmm. are pushing forward this narrative, that started it, that are pushing it forward, that have the, uh, the, the greatest sort of voice in it. Um, I, I really think that may speak to the fact that these are the individuals that have been on the front lines of maybe losing their jobs or seeing their work ultimately and fundamentally change, maybe not even in Alberta context, but in a global context, as work has changed as to what we do as human beings. So I, I, I feel like that's partially where it's gendered. But I, I'm curious, like, are you guys seeing this as, as, you know, fellow Albertans, are you seeing this as being a pretty gendered approach or a pretty gendered sort of pseudo campaign that you're seeing? Well, I, th- I do think that it, it plays into anger. And when the when we did have our economic downturn, there is a 30% increase in domestic violence in this province. So we oh, wow. don't really okay. need to mm-hmm. increase anger, I would say. Uh, I, I would rather see us have a productive outlet. But my other concern is if you're taking an intersectional lens on this, we all live on treaty land. Like the fact that I just find it such a colonial way of, of saying, we're just going to leave. Leave what? What do we have to leave with? You know, like I think of First Nations people and, and especially women, First Nations women, and they're not even in the line of discussion or um, within this. And it's not only going to cause regional concerns, I think it's going to cause concerns within our own province if we don't think about everybody that's involved with this decision and really what will the outcomes be. Even if we don't separate, you could have large par- portions and other groups within this uh, within our province who are saying, you didn't even think about it. You never even thought about the fact that this is treaty land and um, if you want to leave the country, you have to talk to us first, actually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a very, that's a yeah. that that viewpoint has not even been introduced. That's a very fascinating, and I I, I love that comment. Mm-hmm. And the and what worries me is also like like Alicia said, the link to violence, right? And I've seen that on this Wexit Facebook page, people have already been talking about forming volunteer militias, 
um, and like how this is so highly emotional and so so much anger involved and how that can quickly escalate to violence. Um, and then also the I, I've seen so many people since this has been raised, um, like I think this is a really important concern and a lot of people since it's been raised, predominantly folks that I've seen anyway have been in Edmonton <laughs> largely just laughing at it and just being dismissive of it. And it's like, that's the that's worst thing you can either. do because that <laughs> yeah. would fuel it, right? And you- No, no, and this is, you're, absolute, you're absolutely right. You're, yeah, no, absolutely. Like I'm actually sitting at a desk where I've got this book called Hillbilly Elegy sitting in front of me, which is- That's a good book. Right, okay. So it's a book that explores the, the, how, how Trump happened through the eyes of a guy from Ohio who grew up in a, a, a poor rural family and made it to Harvard, you know, Yale Law School but talks about how you know your community sticks with you and how these sentiments were overlooked, were addressed, patronized. To to your last comment, and that's what we can't do, right? Like I, we can call it ridiculous, as I have, because I think the outcome of it happening is ridiculous, and we need to broadcast that to the mm-hmm. rest of the country to say, like, listen, Albertans writ large do not believe this is true, but let's now look insular and please stop kicking us while we're down, because let's talk about the real concerns that these individuals have, because these are our neighbors, right? Um, like whether, is it actually work? Is it, is it, is it, is it mental health? Is it, uh, you know, uh, the economy more broadly? Is it future prospects? Is it current prospects? I mean, these are the cocktail of things that I've only included a few that are leading people to have this conversation. Right. Um, and so, I mean, this is such a tall task for the Trudeau government. I, I really hope, um, you know, and I say that not as a partisan, I say that as the fact that this is my government now, I really hope as a government that they can help figure this out because, um, the the threat of something like this, while it may not be real, the mindset of it becoming real, I think is almost as dangerous. Oh, wow. Well, that was a lot to talk about today. Thank you so much. We've come to the end of our questions. And uh, so was there anything else you wanted to mention before we, we finish up? No, no. Thanks for taking the time. And I'm sorry for my rambly answers. It's a lot of fun. Well, I, and I think this is great. The, the election's been taken on lots of different angles, but we really wanted to make sure we, we took an intersectional lens on it and, and thought outside of our own situations to, because uh, that's part of the dialogue, right? Is uh, looking, I guess, past our own noses a little bit at, um, at our, our greater country. So I, I've tried to, to grab a few key takeaways from this, this um, conversation. So um, I'll just kind of go through with what I found. So the first that it seemed like there was no really defying ballot box question this time, that it was very regionalized, our election here in Canada. And with that, I uh, created some just some additional problems during the election, but then also within the outcomes. And when you look at progressive parties um, or progressive ideas, they are in, in some ways they are in the forefront of looking at things that maybe in a more equity, diversity, and inclusion lens. That being said, there's times when um, there's still mistakes being made. For example, the difference between allyship versus savior, <laughs> saviorism, I guess, and that. Uh, we can't just have diversity. That's just step one. The inclusivity is the other part of the of the puzzle that everyone needs to have their voice as well. Um, we are a country full of. Um, I think I think your word was 
we're a highly textual c- country with mm-hmm. many different backgrounds and whatnot. So, and we do have to 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 think with of it in a different scale. I would say uh, to increase the diversity of our candidates. This is something that uh, can't just be face value. That we need to dig deeper, and it's not just about numbers. It's about um, understanding where the candidates are put, what kind of support that they get uh, in order to find more success. And then for those that are successful, that uh, there's a better way to explain um, people's backgrounds and what they can actually contribute versus just creating a uh, gender uh, gender parity within, within a cabinet kind of concept. And finally, that when we look here in Alberta, to um, take people's emotions seriously, but let's not forget that there is many voices here and it is better to bring them all to the table and to think about the consequences of some of the things that we are proposing and that um, it might be better to create a um, productive forward um, (laughs) progression versus um, going down rabbit holes that maybe could never happen anyways, but to not take that for granted that the mindset of the separation can be just as powerful as actually leaving. So that, is there anything else I missed, Marcy? Oh, it sounds fantastic. All right, great. (laughs) Okay. And uh, don't forget to check out the resources section of the podcast to find any references that were mentioned and, uh, and please hit subscribe to be notified when a new episode is released. And finally, let's continue the conversation. We'd like to know what you have to think. We talked about lots of things today. So send us your questions. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We'd like to hear from you. And until next time, bye. Bye.